0: Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Jeanette Bouchard, and I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist at WakeMed Health and Hospitals in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is our next episode in the series we like to call Dosing Consults. This class of episodes was kicked off with our May 2022 episode on ceftriaxone dosing and has continued with linazolid. These episodes are meant to be quick and replicate a curbside question or thought. If you haven't listened to our other consult episodes already, I highly encourage you to do so. Our consult today is about dosing and obesity. We will take a high level look at dosing and obesity with a focus on when we as practitioners would be thinking about changing our standard dosing and potentially exploring therapeutic drug monitoring or TDM. What is even more exciting is that we're about to dabble in the pediatric realm, which is an area that I personally feel I could always be more knowledgeable in. I have two expert panelists today to take us through our topic. First, I'd like to rewelcome Dr. Amit Pai. Dr. Amit Pai is a professor and chair of clinical pharmacy and deputy director of pharmacokinetics core laboratory at the University of Michigan. His research focus is optimal drug dosing in specific populations such as obesity and patients with abnormal kidney function. He earned his PharmD from the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in San Antonio, Texas completed a pharmacy practice residency at Bassett Healthcare in Cooperstown, New York, as well as an infectious diseases pharmacokinetics fellowship at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Amit, we're thrilled to have you join us today, and thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here today.
0: Next, we have Dr. Kate Kyler, who is an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Division of Hospital Medicine and a current fellow in the Division of Clinical Pharmacology, Toxicology, and Therapeutic Innovation at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. Her research interests center on improving pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic information to inform precision dosing strategies for children with obesity. She earned her MD from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, completed her pediatric residency training at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, and a pediatric hospital medicine fellowship at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. She also has earned a master's in bioinformatics and clinical research from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Jeanette. I'm honored to be here. Okay, so I want to start off nice and easy here with a brief description of how we classify obesity. It's different, I think, between adults and pediatrics, so I want to really help paint the picture of the patients we should be worried about when dosing, and this will give us kind of a good way to start and jump in.
1: Sure. So just to begin with uh, adults, I think our current definition is based on body mass index, which is basically the weight of an individual divided by their height in meters squared. And when that value exceeds 30, we define those individuals as being obese. Now, one of the challenges with that sort of definition is that it, it encompasses all body phenotypes. And so it doesn't necessarily capture someone that's truly obese. There's a risk of misclassification. And so even though we use that as the definition of obesity, it is critical that clinicians look at the patient that they're treating ahead of them because there's always this risk of misclassification.
0: And Kate, do you have anything to add from the pediatric side?
2: Yeah, I can, I can add to that for, for kids. Um, the definitions of obesity are different in children than they are in adults because we have an old adage in pediatrics. Kids are not just little adults, so that's probably a theme that we could draw on uh, for this entire podcast. But growth and body composition are obviously a lot more dynamic in kids and childhood than it is in adulthood. So the CDC provides some different classifications for obesity for kids. They're based on age and sex-specific BMI percentiles, so we also do use BMI to classify kids as having obesity or not. And obesity in children is generally defined as having a BMI greater than or equal to the 95th percentile for age and sex. It gets a little bit more complicated when you talk about obesity severity in kids because you can classify kids as having class 1, class 2, or class 3 obesity. And those are defined based on the percentile of the 95th percentile. And so those are available from the CDC if you're interested in looking into that in more detail.
0: Yeah, when I was first kind of getting into obesity in children was COVID because of our monoclonal antibodies tended to have an obesity classification. And I was like, oh, the CDC has
2: like the growth curve. You can't really calculate it the same way you do adults. Right. Yeah, it definitely looks different. The growth curve is, we look at it constantly in pediatrics, and there's actually a special growth curve for kids that have obesity. And, And just to piggyback on what Amit was describing, there's still the limitations and, and potential for misclassification of obesity in kids just, you know, because people have different body compositions and lean body mass can be a larger factor in the in a child's weight and and body composition.
0: Well, thank you for that great foundation. So I'm gonna dive right in. Patients who are classified or categorized as obese often have an altered physiology compared to non-obese patients. And this typically leads to changes in PK and PD. So can you describe what these physiologic changes are and how they're expected to lead to changes in the PK, PD? We can start with you, Kate, with the kids. Sure.
2: Yeah. I'll actually, I can even just start with things that I think might apply across the, the spectrum from childhood into adulthood. Yeah, obesity definitely leads to alterations in physiology that can affect pretty much every aspect of drug pharmacokinetics, so across the whole ADME spectrum. So I can sort of just walk through, you know, starting with absorption. So with absorption, I think this is true in children and adults, obesity can alter gastric emptying time, which can be related to, you know, development of insulin resistance or or diabetes is when you have those conditions you have. Slowed gastric emptying time or slowed intestinal transit, and that can absolutely affect drug absorption. Um, and gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD is also more common in kids with obesity. And so it's possible that, you know, the resulting gastric inflammation could, you know, change drug dissolution and affect absorption of drugs as well. And then as you might expect, we move on to the, the D in adme, so that's a distribution. And obesity has a pretty big effect on drug distribution, which basically drug distribution just describes how readily a drug either stays in the blood or distributes out into other tissues. And so the volume of distribution is uh, the PK parameter that, that represents this concept. And obesity obviously affects body composition, meaning the body has a higher ratio of adipose tissue generally to lean muscle, uh, lean tissue or muscle mass. And so this will affect how and where a drug will distribute within the body. And so drug physiochemical properties like how hydrophilic or how lipophilic a drug is can affect that volume of distribution in all patients, kids or adults. But with those that have more adiposity, the size of the pharmacologic compartment that drugs might distribute into changes pretty substantially. And so... um, you know, and because in kids, growth and body composition changes a little bit more dynamically throughout childhood, this is especially relevant, I think, in kids. And there are plenty of PK studies in kids with obesity that have confirmed that alteration in, um, in volume of distribution. So next, moving on to metabolism and ADME. So this is obviously a major component of our uh, pharmacokinetics and obesity can alter metabolism as well. Um, one major way it can do that is through alterations in liver function, you know, liver being a primary site of drug metabolism by cytochrome P450 or CYP enzymes. And obesity, you know, can be associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, both in kids and in adults. And so having that alteration in, in liver function can change the activity and the expression of CYP enzymes, which... Um, can have a major effect on drug metabolism. And then finally for the E, which is elimination. So obesity can cause changes in blood flow to the major organs that are responsible for eliminating drugs, so the liver and kidneys, um, and can also, as I already mentioned, affect liver function and sometimes kidney function as well. And so obesity really can, across the whole ADME spectrum, cause changes in, in pharmacokinetics
0: that was really comprehensive. And I feel like when I think about a lot of that stuff, I don't know why, maybe it's just because of what they taught us in pharmacy school, but kidneys always come to mind with patients who are obese and just like the kidney size. So excretion is always what I think of. Amit, do you have anything to add?
1: Sure. I think Kate did a fantastic job kind of reviewing everything, as you as you said, uh, just to add to some of that. I think in adults as they're becoming more obese what we've observed is like an increase initially an increase in cardiac output that also then can lead to increases in kidney function as well uh typically the expectation is an increase in about 50% from baseline and that is more likely to happen initially in especially in, in patients that are diabetic as well so some comorbidities kind of play an influence with that but over over time, there's actually potential loss of kidney function as well. So I think that kind of adds to this complexity because not, it's not just that increase in body weight, but also kind of aging as well in that adult that can influence the trajectory of that organ function. Uh, when we think of metabolism, so I'm not going to talk so much about absorption. We don't have as much detail, except we do understand that that it does impact gastric emptying. But with metabolism, I think what we do know is that there's actually a reduction in CYP3A4 activity. And why that's relevant is because CYP3A4 is sort of the most uh, common enzyme that is responsible for metabolism of a lot of drugs. And so that's kind of an opposing thought, right? So in the larger individual, we think of sometimes requiring a larger dose. But you actually see a reduction in CYP3A4 activity. So there's a potential that you may not have to increase the dose as much as you think you should. Uh, What we do see is CYP2E1 is the isoenzyme system that does increase its activity, and that's the enzyme system that's responsible more for anesthetics. So uh, there's some little nuances there based on metabolism. Most often for antibiotics, this may or may not be as relevant.
0: And do you guys see normally if the trends kind of stay more linear as weight goes up or the more weight you add on or the more obese a patient is, it doesn't necessarily mean the more 3A4 you'll have, you'll drive up, or is there not any kind of information based off of that?
1: I I think in general, just a kind of a broad strokes, again, it's going to depend on, you know, the the populations that you study, but very typically as someone increases in body size in adulthood, if you're looking at a 50 kilogram person out to a 150 kilogram person, and then beyond that to say even a 200 kilogram person, your expectation is that it's going to be non-linear. Uh, And that typically will scale in a way that if you're going from a 50-kilogram person to 150-kilogram person, which is a three-fold increase in body size, it typically will scale to no more than a two-fold change in that parameter.
0: Interesting. It's kind of like your nonlinear voriconazole dosing and things like that, where just because someone is so much overweight, you don't want to triple the dose to make up for it. So how do we know that this matters? What clinical data do we have in obesity that suggests dosing should be optimized or you should be paying specific attention to these patients over it just being something that we see in the lab or something that we think about like from a physiologic standpoint. Um, And I'll let Amit start here.
1: Sure. I think uh, there's, again, some epidemiologic evidence that shows that uh, when you're looking at outpatient use of antibiotics, especially those that are fixed dose, like amoxicillin, ciprofloxacin, that there might be poorer outcomes in adults. Again, this is based on large population-level analyses. I think from the clinical setting, what we see more from the inpatient side is a clear representation for risk for toxicity with some key compounds. I mean, I think when you look at aminoglycosides, vancomycin, polymyxins, amphotericin B, it's very clear that if you were were not optimizing the dose in obese individuals you were more likely to give them a high dose and see toxicity
2: yeah I, I agree uh for children it's a similar scenario in figuring out why does this matter i would say that there are there's less information about you know drug pharmacokinetics in children in general and a lot of the studies that do exist have been focused on drugs that are prescribed to kids in a hospital population, and that uh, the same as Amit, I I would focus on where the outcomes differences stand out for those populations. And so in pediatrics, where that has been seen for kids with obesity having poorer outcomes, it happens in children with critical illness which makes sense when you think about how that affects organ function and hemodynamics in children with obesity, that might be especially relevant. And then in, in other diseases as well, like children with asthma have poor outcomes when they have obesity. And then there's also uh, children postoperatively tend to have worse outcomes when they have obesity. And so in those populations, I think it's most relevant to think about the drug doses that we're, we're prescribing for these children. Um, one big message that I think is important to know about drug pharmacokinetic studies and, and PD studies in children is that we just don't have a lot of information, to be honest. The studies that do exist generally have found that there are pharmacokinetic differences that exist for kids with obesity compared to kids with a more average weight Um You know, and how clinically relevant some of those findings are, I think, is questionable. And some of the, you know, aminoglycoside antibiotics being another example where there is some evidence where there might be risk of toxicity among kids with obesity as well. But that in general, there's just not a lot of information about kids and their pharmacokinetics of some of the even frequently prescribed drugs that we see on the inpatient side, because kids are just generally left out of drug trials and clinical trials. Um, At least that was true in the past. Thankfully, there's the Pediatric Trials Network, which is a research effort, a collaborative that is funded by the NIH and NICHD, has prioritized improving pharmacokinetic information to support drug dosing recommendations in children and focusing on certain populations like neonates, but children with obesity is another population that they are focusing on. So there's been a lot more information and studies that are ongoing to that focus on this particular population, which I'm excited about. That's very exciting. I'm always surprised by the lack of data in pediatrics when I get called
0: on to help because my institution does not have an ID pharmacist in the pediatric world, nor do we have an ID consult team officially in our hospital. So we always get called on for neonates and I'm like, mm,
2: I'm not sure if there's even data to use what I would think to use in neonates. So right. It's definitely a challenge. And as as a researcher myself, I, I feel that challenge. You know, it's hard. There's a lot more hurdles, I think, to jump through to include children and especially vulnerable populations like a neonate in your studies. But thankfully, I think that it's becoming a little bit more accepted and more common now so we can have some more information to support uh, dosing recommendations for these kids. So you guys kind of
0: dived into a little bit what I was going to go into next, which is What should we be looking at from a provider standpoint to think about when drug dosing might be an issue? So Kate, you touched on a lot of different disease states where drug dosing, specifically in obesity, might be an issue. But what other patient characteristics or what other disease states, like if I see a pediatric or an adult come in who's obese for X disease state, should I think about increasing my cefazolin dose or something like that?
2: I can start. And I think that you know, that with the precious little that we know, and because some of the results of the PK studies that exist are kind of variable in pediatrics, it's honestly hard to say. But that in general, you know, children with, who are critically ill, I think is one population to definitely focus on. And then thinking about drug properties that might be more relevant, like drugs that have a really narrow therapeutic index or have a higher likelihood of having severe toxicities occur or therapeutic failures for that matter would be important to focus on. One point that I'll make about kids that I think is a little is definitely unique is just how we dose drugs also is a little bit different. You know, we we dose drugs based on the milligrams per kilogram of body weight in general. That's what most drugs how most drugs are dosed in children. And so it's it's really different from adults and you can see how when a child has obesity that might really play into ultimate drug dose that they receive. Um, And so personally, I think about drug dosing for every child that comes through my own practice that has obesity, because if you think about the typical eight-year-old, you know, in in an average way, you know, the 50th percentile weight for that age child is say like 25 or 30 kilograms or something like that. And you give them a dose of Tylenol, something that we prescribe all the time. And this could be applied to any antimicrobial as well. You know, they would get a dose of, you know, 10 to 15 milligrams per kilogram, so maybe 350 milligram dose, but a child of the same age who has obesity and is maybe 50 kilograms will get double the dose or max out at the adult dose. And so that that happens almost every time a child is being prescribed a drug when they have obesity. And so I think it's just, it's hard to know what that means right now. Um, but thinking about those particular populations of kids with obesity who are more critically ill, post-op, or where you know that they have poor outcomes, I think is especially important to focus on those.
0: Now, do you think that the make-per-kig dosing in children is more of a step up when it comes to dosing in obesity than with adults where we just use a flat dose most of the time? Like every adult gets tracks on 2 grams, but you do kind of make up for a lot of those weight differences in children by doing a make-per-kig?
2: until obviously the max cap. Right. I mean, I guess when you think about it, it is kind of like precision dosing in a way or individualized dosing, maybe not precision, but it's, you are basing your dose on the individual, but a lot of the dosing parameters that we use are based on older pharmacokinetic studies that were done in adults and has been extrapolated to children. And as I said before, children are not just little adults. And so once we've done the PK studies in kids, have found that maybe what we were doing wasn't exactly hitting the target in terms of that therapeutic window.
0: I'm sure you could talk about
2: this specific question
0: for ages, uh, but do you have anything that if you were to see it coming into the hospital, you would start to think about changing up the dosing?
1: Yeah. So I think to, you know, to Kate's point, a lot of, a lot of drugs in children are based on weight because of the translation to that population. And so you kind of ask the same question of, you know, why do we have drugs that are dosed on weight in adults in the first place? Because the expectation is in in a child that's growing, that they're reaching some sort of asymptote, and that you don't have to increase the dose any further. So then to have the same molecule have to continue to dose that on a milligram per kilogram basis, is kind of a question that everyone needs to ask. When a drug is approved on a milligram per kilogram basis, is that going to be the same milligram per kilogram dose across that entire weight spectrum? And the answer is almost always no. You're always going to overdose someone if you use that principle. And so uh, when you see a drug that's on a milligram per kilogram basis, the way we sort of fix that problem is by using an adjusted body weight or an alternate body size descriptor, because we recognize that, that, that failure in a sense, right? So I think first off is just thinking about the drug. How is it dosed? If it's a fixed dose scenario, asking the question of, you know, what are the risks if I underdosed this person? Will I be able to to recognize those things early or not? And then making a modification accordingly. I think we often don't have the information that we need when a drug enters the market, and so we have to rely on our clinical pharmacology skills to kind of make those kind of leaps. So I think. The big parts for me are often, you know, is it going to be less safe if I dose it this way? And if that's the case, then that'll be the imperative to make a change.
0: Right. And I think personally, from my own clinical practice experience, I think about, like Kate was saying, our critically ill patients. And then I think a lot about beta-lactams because they have such a wide therapeutic index. It's very difficult to overdose on cefazolin, which I think is why that was probably one of the first ones we started to push a little bit more. I know I've I've done a good three gram QA every once in a while with a patient who's maybe more obese or in in the ICU where I'm worried about drug exposure, especially with staff. And then, what do you think? So, I think a lot of our dosing kind of concerns is from an inpatient side, right? Because we think about our critically ill patients, our immunocompromised patients, but we don't really ever think about outpatients. And so what are some things that you would consider from going down to oral antibiotics or oral therapy that you would want to maybe push the dose for or be cognizant of before
2: sending a patient out? I would consider in children the severity of their obesity and any obesity comorbid conditions that they might have, you know, because you're you're taking the antibiotic orally, you've got absorption to contend with. And so once again, if that child has type two diabetes or or signs of insulin resistance, would you need to think about how that might affect their absorption? Or if they have significant non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, how could that affect their metabolism? So I do think that a child who has more severe obesity, I I would be thinking about if I needed to adjust their dose. I'm not sure if you have anything to add in there.
1: Yeah, I think some one of the clear clear examples has been sort of surgical site infections and skin and skin structure infections where your probability of recurrence is higher in obese individuals versus non-obese individuals. Unfortunately what we don't have is, you know, what it, what that dose modification should be under those given scenarios and whether dose modification will be sufficient. I think one of the pieces that I didn't discuss in that sort of assessment of physiologic change is even if we increase our plasma concentrations, they may not necessarily translate to better um, concentrations of the target tissue site. And then one of those spaces is clearly the, that subcutaneous fat tissue space. And so I think one of the challenges there is not necessarily that increasing the dose will will improve outcomes. I'm not certain of that.
2: I that I agree that's such an important point and one that I've run into in my research in myself is maybe we need to adjust the dose but it's hard to know without that pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data which way to go. And one point that we really didn't touch on was what Amit is saying that pharmacodynamic side of things and how obesity alters that in general is People who have obesity have a higher level of baseline inflammation, and that can absolutely affect the response at the target tissue and expression of receptors and transporter proteins from an epigenetic standpoint. That's the effect that obesity has. And so it you know you may not get that, even if you get that equal serum concentration, you may not get an equal response. Okay. So
0: far... We have our main populations that we would be concerned about. And we have a lot of unknowns, especially when it comes to outpatient or just in general, what would be the right dose. So this kind of leads me into our therapeutic drug monitoring aspect of this pod. So bench to bedside. How do we take TDM and use it to help us in this situation specifically for obesity? And then also if you guys could go into a little bit about The logistics of TDM? I know we've had a couple of podcasts that talked about therapeutic drug monitoring. We have a really great one where some of our friends out of University of Florida have talked about inpatient therapeutic drug monitoring, but obviously for children, I haven't seen a whole lot of this. (laughs) So what are the logistics of it and who would you reserve it for?
1: Sure. I, I can get started with this. I mean, we run an analytical core lab, for example, so we have developed a lot of these assays Unfortunately, most of that is for research and not for actual clinical use and translation. And I think that speaks to the problem fundamentally is that there's certainly an opportunity to optimize a dose for a given individual, but getting that information back in time to sort of respond to that case is always a challenge for that reason. The other one is that you had mentioned about beta-lactams, for example, having a really wide therapeutic range potentially and an, an an option of raising the dose much higher than you would traditionally use. And so even having that concentration measurement may not necessarily be useful in a sense. So sometimes I feel as though TDM is useful when you wanna make a justification for a dose modification, in a sense to convince your providers that we may need to use a higher dose on average for a group of individuals. But I think the level of evidence overall uh, is limited to just a handful of drugs, unfortunately. I think it's very clear for aminoglycosides, ribavirin, boriconazole, it's just some examples. I don't think the body of evidence is large enough yet to kind of make a clear case for all the antibiotics.
2: Yes, the situation is similar <laughs> in pediatrics, or maybe even we have less information to go off of when it comes to using TDM. And specifically for antimicrobials, there are a few scenarios where we use TDM regularly for vancomycin and aminoglycosides, like Amit mentioned, and voriconazole. And a lot of that information is based off of adult studies. For vancomycin specifically, there are a fair number of pediatric studies looking at vancomycin PK, and a few that specifically look at children with obesity. But right now, the IDSA recommendations don't call out anything specific regarding choosing a different dose or adjusted body weight use in, in dosing vancomycin for kids with obesity. It appears based on what we know so far that total body weight is adequate for choosing your first, your initial dose for that. And for for gentamicin, there actually is a recommendation for children to use an adjusted body weight for children with obesity um, when you're choosing your initial dose. And then obviously as you would with any TDM protocol, kind of adjusting your doses based on on subsequent measurements thereafter. But overall the situation is similar and it's, you know, limited to performance at freestanding children's hospitals that have the kind of analytics available to to do that kind of therapeutic monitoring. Right. Exactly. So turnaround time being a
0: very big thing, but then to Amit's point doing it enough where you have a bigger idea more of what the drug and the patient population is doing. So you're not just doing one-offs, which I feel like for smaller institutions who don't have TDM right on their front doorstep or at the the lab next door, that's more of what they do is just spot checking. I know one of the times I've spot checked is the ceftaroline where there was clear adverse events happening probably because of the ceftaroline and then we checked a level and it was way above what you would consider to be like appropriate treatment de- trough levels for ceftaroline. And so we were like, well, that's probably why they became neutropenic. <laughs> Those are more mm-hmm. of the instances that I think a lot of our institutions use therapeutic drug monitoring. I think it would be probably useful if we could get TDM up and running in more areas so we could have more research surrounding it. A lot of our retrospective studies, I know just from changing drug dosing at an institution are Retrospective studies looking at dosing and weight and then outcomes, but there's nothing that specifically says that there was a certain therapeutic level that were related to those outcomes. Do you guys have anything else to add in terms of dosing or anything that you would want your general pharmacist or your general practitioner to know when it comes to dosing and obesity?
1: I think I I just want to add that I think fundamentally the issue is that we know on average that obese adults need a bigger dose. And the question is, how much of a bigger dose should they get? And most often, that answer is about 50% more. But the practical aspects of it are what what prevent us from doing that. Often with oral drugs, because there's limited formulations, we're not able to split pills in a way to achieve that. Uh, But I would love to see that change so that we can actually deliver more precision to our dosing.
2: If I had... You know, to summarize or create some take home points from the pediatric aspect, I would reiterate that kids with obesity are not just little adults with obesity. Age and maturation are very important influencers on body size and drug pharmacokinetics and dynamics in kids. So you have to, we can't just extrapolate adult data to children in every instance. And it's hard to know when. It's going to be similar to adults and different because what PK data does exist is pretty variable. Um, And that in general, because we have so much less PK data right now for kids with obesity, it's really just hard to say with certainty if we should be using adjusted body weights or ideal body weights or some other anthropometric measure to guide dosing instead of total body weight in kids. But hopefully things will be getting better from that standpoint. And that in the meantime, while we don't have a ton of information about how we should be addressing dosing for kids with obesity, I would just encourage practitioners and folks who are prescribing drugs to children to be cognizant of the toxicities and potential therapeutic failures that can happen in kids who have obesity, especially kids with severe obesity or kids with critical illness.
0: I really identify with Amit's point about drugs that can't be split or that have different formulations as a dose of boriconazole patient.
2: Yeah, that can be an issue in pediatrics too, because the, sometimes kids don't like taking medicines or can't take pills. So we have to add that layer on for the pediatric and side. A lot of pediatric formulations are
0: terrible. I help with, with patients who have HIV who then give birth and then their babies on prophylaxis and- Raltegravir is a, is a sachet that you mix and giving that to a neonate and teaching someone to give that to a neonate is absolutely terrible. And it's definitely not precision medicine at all. I'm like, this is a guesstimate. (laughs) If anything, that was a big challenge. Great. Okay. So, now we'll pivot into our I Feel Nerdy segment. So, I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, or fun facts. So, today's I Feel Nerdy was inspired by none other than one of our other hosts here at Breakpoints, Dr. Julian Justo, who is a friend of Dr. Amit Pai and said that this would be an interesting one to get his thoughts on. So, The question is, what is your favorite PK parameter and why, or just general PK PD thought?
2: I I will, I can take this one first so that Amit has plenty of time to nerd out on his topic after this, (laughs) but we've been nerding out on my favorite PK topic this entire time. So I'm really happy already, but if I had to choose a PK parameter, I would say as a clinician, um, who came to have in some kind of pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic knowledge a little bit later in my career, I really like AUC, very under the curve, because it just is such a great way to visualize what's actually happening with a drug, but tying exposure to the time and just seeing exactly what's happening. You can visualize where the therapeutic window might fall and when you're in it or out of it. And so I think that's my favorite because it helped helped me understand visually, you know, what what I was learning when I was learning about pharmacokinetics in more detail.
1: Yeah, I I can't agree more. I think AAC is truly a wonderful parameter because it kind of summarizes a lot of information very easily. So because of that, I'm going to have to nerd out on another fact related, but not not directly related to PK. But it's just the way in which we sort of think about averages. So I want to just nerd out about our way in which we sort of normalize a standard, and that standard is either as a 70 kilogram individual or this 1.73 meter squared individual. So for the nerds out there, this started in 1928 is where this fact comes from. So this was reported by McIntosh in 1928 from a sample of 25-year-olds, males and females, who averaged out to actually 1.72 meters squared. But it was it's been transcribed incorrectly over time to be 1.73, but because they made a platinum, platinum iridium square and as an SI unit of 1.73 meters squared, it's sort of retained in, in the literature this way. Ultimately, it's not a good parameter anymore because we don't have an average 1.73 meters squared individual. In the United States, that's closer to 2.01 meter squared in, in males and, and closer to 1.86 in females. So it's very far from the standard. And why this is a problem is our method of kidney function estimation. Our kidney function estimation, GFRs, are reported out in one, out to 1.73 meters squared. And in fact, in children as well, that which again is non-representative of an average. So in adults, and especially obese adults, when it's reported out in that manner, we are actually underestimating uh, functions.
0: Perfect. That was what Julie was telling me. She was like, if you give him this prompt, I bet you he's going to tell this story. That was great. Really appreciated that. Well, thank you both for joining me today. And thank you to our loyal audience for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Jeanette Bouchard, and our featured speakers today have been Drs. Amit Pai and Kate Kyler. Breakpoints was created by Julie Ann Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Jillian Hayes and myself, Jeanette Bouchard. It was edited by Vivian Sai and peer-reviewed by Vela Yerv-Viswesh and Amanda Roy. Our production team includes Veronica Zavante and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir, and our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.